You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 4th of September 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. The reason that we are in this crisis now, one of the many reasons, is because we don't have a codified written constitution. Does the UK need a written constitution? And if it did have one, would anyone debating Brexit today be paying attention? My guests today, Terry Stiasny and Amy Pope, will discuss that and the day's other news, including... Mike Pence's trip to Ireland and why he trumped to stay in a very particular choice of hotel resort. Plus, reflections on the situation in Hong Kong as well. So much has happened. There's been so much footage of the abuse of protesters. There has been a building of anger and, and frustration. And at this point, their demands have only increased. So, yes, this is is um, one success, but it's a little bit too, too little too late. I'm Ben Rylan. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the program. I'm joined today by the political journalist Terry Stiasny and Amy Pope, Associate Fellow at the US and America's program at Chatham House. We'll begin today in the United Kingdom, where British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been on the receiving end of a historic defeat in the House of Commons. Now, yesterday, rebel Conservative Party MPs and other opposition parties rallied to object to a no-deal Brexit. The unprecedented events in UK politics this week have raised questions about whether the nation's unwritten constitution and some fairly flagrant disrespect of political norms in the House are in need of addressing. Here's the Green Party's Caroline Lucas yesterday. But finally, Mr Speaker, I want to make a point that I think is important, although some may feel it is, it is boring. But actually, do you know what? The reason that we are in this crisis now, one of the many reasons, is because we don't have a codified written constitution. It is only the unwritten, uncodified understandings that protect the body politic from regressing to government with minimal checks, balances and accountability. Up until now, we've had to depend on people playing by the rules. Well, now we have a government that is not playing by the rules. So we need more than ever a written constitution drawn up by a democratic citizens' convention that will put people at the heart of our politics for the first time in UK history. Caroline Lucas there from the Green Party. Uh, Terry, playing by the rules. I mean, it almost feels quaint given that we had some suggestions not too long ago that uh, the government may consider simply disregarding the law. Uh, But look, are you sensing that perhaps the framework of UK politics is starting to be unpicked and undone? I think we're in some very unusual territory here, certainly. I mean, you don't normally see, uh, for instance, a prime minister losing their first ever House of Commons vote. I mean, that, that apparently hasn't happened since sometime in the late 19th century. But I think Caroline Lucas is wrong in some ways, because I think what we are seeing is the unwritten constitution actually working. Because what we're seeing is that we've got a huge body of parliamentary procedure and that Parliament is actually stepping up uh, to scrutinise 
the executive to challenge the prime minister and the government and to say, you know, you can't get things done without the consent of parliament. And we are in an unusual situation because as of yesterday, we now have a minority government. We saw the very bizarre situation of one MP crossing the floor, literally, of the House of Commons from the Conservative Party to join the Liberal Democrats, which meant the government was a minority. We then had the Conservative Party sacking 21 of its own MPs, including two former chancellors, which means they haven't got a majority at all. But Parliament is now taking control. And, you know, they are using, yes, obscure bits of parliamentary procedure, obscure standing orders and things, but those are there, you know, and watching what the House of Lords may do later on this evening, the rules are there and they're being used. It's just a question of who can be more clever in interpreting the rules and getting things to work their way. Uh, Amy, I suppose it depends on which metaphor you choose. Uh, This could be a boxing match where everyone's pulling the wrong kind of punches and breaking all the rules, or perhaps it's a game of chess and it's just become so complex that we're all starting to lose track. Uh, But as Terry suggests, it's an unusual situation, but so far Boris Johnson hasn't succeeded in forcing his way through, has he? Is there sufficient evidence here to suggest that despite the chaos, actually the system, the framework, the skeleton of Westminster is holding up okay? I think especially if you compare it to what's happening in the United States at this moment, where we do have a constitution, um, yet the president continues to push the boundaries. He continues to flout the norms. He's continually in court um, where he is being held to account for violating that constitution. But that just takes a tremendous amount of time. And nonetheless, he just continues um, along his merry way. And so I don't necessarily think the answer is a constitution, but it's really what's happening within the party. What I don't see in the United States is the Republican Party questioning the president's tactics, regardless of the long-term impact on our institutional norms. And what I see here in the UK is actually heartening for that very reason. Uh, It's an interesting situation, I think, uh, that we've found ourselves in, uh, to say the least. Uh, Terry, you alluded earlier to the defection of Philip Lee that happened yesterday. He physically got up and and crossed the floor. Uh, 21 MPs have now been expelled by the Conservative Party. How much power then has fallen into the hands of Jeremy Corbyn? He is, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn's pretty much been on his feet in the last few minutes, you know, challenging Boris Johnson at Prime Minister's questions. You know, again, a parliamentary thing that happens every week and is still happening, you know, despite the the really bizarre circumstances of today. Um, I think Jeremy Corbyn, it's... He's only got as much power as he can get if he works together uh, with the other parties. I think the absolutely key thing now is to work with, as you say, some of these uh, rebel conservatives who have made a lot of the running uh, in terms of trying to bring a bill forward. I mean, one of the people who lost the conservative whip last night was Sir Oliver Letwin, who's the person who is you know, tabling these motions to try and get... Uh, a bill which would delay Brexit and prevent a no-deal Brexit. Um, So, you know, there are a lot of people, not least on his own side, who are sceptical of uh, of Corbyn, sceptical of the opposition. And that is the dilemma, partly for a lot of people, you know, do you go for an election? And one of the one another reason I'd say that the sort of the Constitution is working, if you like, is we've now got this Fixed Term Parliaments Act, which was brought in by the coalition government, uh, the Lib Dem Conservative coalition government, which actually means, you know, a prime minister, Boris Johnson used to be able to say, I'm going to call an election. I'm going to call an election on October the 15th, which is when he would like, when he's just said that he would like to do it. 
Uh, he now has to get Parliament to agree to that. He has to get two-thirds of the MPs to agree to that. Uh, and without Jeremy Corbyn's uh, agree- agreement to that and without him getting his MPs to vote for it, that can't happen. Uh, and just on that, Terry, I mean, it's unlikely to happen, isn't it? I mean, we've already had the Labour opposition saying that they're not interested in an, elec- an election unless the uh, unless no-deal Brexit is taken off the table. The SNP are almost also on board with that, the Liberal Democrats. Is there any way forward for, uh, for Boris Johnson on this? To be honest, I can't see what that is at the moment. Yes, if he doesn't, you know, if you don't get the vote, apart from calling a vote of no confidence in your own government, um, it's very, very difficult to see how he gets out of that, precisely because of um, these provisions of the the Fixed Term Parliament Act. But as we say, we're, you know, in totally uncharted territory. Everything can change at the moment from from one day to the next. So I'm kind of reluctant to make predictions. Mm. Uh, Amy, it's it's, uh, interesting to note here that Johnson's main threat for a long time has been that he'd suspend Parliament and or call an early election. Both of those threats really haven't managed to go anywhere as yet. Uh, We are in uncharted territory. Anything is possible, it does seem, so far. But, uh, I mean, how are your colleagues back over in the United States viewing this? It must seem like an almost uh, mirror image when it comes to political chaos. It's incredible. It is the one moment in time where I am getting repeated texts and emails from people suggesting that I might have moved to a um, crazier political environment than the one that I was in most recently. <laughs> um, and there's there's little I can say to that. I mean, I've I've um, been a less uh, learning lessons about British parliamentary tactics and politics that I had had no knowledge of before, as I think many Americans are. And so we're kind of watching with interest. <laughs> watching with interest. Wow, <laughs> such a polite. Way. Way of putting Diplomatic. It. <laughs> uh, Terry, uh, just before we move on to some of our other topics today, uh, there is still the question of what happens with the uh, seats represented by those 21 expelled MPs. Uh, there's no reason to believe that whoever stands in those seats for the next election for the Conservative Party is necessarily going to take that vote. How much of a gamble is that? I think that is a really interesting question that we will uh, is going to be a potential problem for the Conservatives uh, if they do have this election in short order. If you look at some of the seats that are represented by uh, these people who've lost the Conservative whip, they are in places like uh, Winchester, Romsey, uh, which is in sort of you know south southwest of England, uh, which not so long ago were held seats were held by Liberal Democrats. They are in large part seats that voted Remain. Um, they are in places like Putney and Wimbledon, again, in the suburbs of southwest London, where the majorities are quite small. If you have lost your long-standing Conservative MP who's been kicked out of the party, has been told that they're not allowed to stand again as a Conservative MP, you're mistrustful of Jeremy Corbyn. I can see people uh, voting Liberal Democrat, particularly in seats like those. The Conservatives are not guaranteed to hold on to some of those seats. Um, You know, in cases like Ken Clark has been an MP since 1970, uh, in Rushcliffe. Uh, these these people have a personal loyalty to them and I think they're causing themselves more problems than they realise by sort of taking out, you know, expelling some of the, the centrist conservatives from the party. Mm, and, and we do, we're short on time, but I just, we I asked uh, Lance Price earlier on this that the part of what happens next is going to come down to the nature of how all of this happened. And, I mean, that that question of loyalty that you touched upon there, that's actually going to become more important, isn't it, given how unceremoniously and publicly this sacking took place? Yes, I think, you know, you don't lose 
I think it's eight former cabinet ministers, including two former chancellors, you know, the grandson of Winston Churchill, a former leadership contender. You don't lose those people, sack those people without it having a knock-on effect of the rest of the party. You've got all of those people who have a strong following and think they have nothing to lose now. Um, and you could get other people, other people following suit. Terry Stiasny and Amy Pope there. We'll be back in just a moment, but first here's Monocle's Yulian Gafan with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thanks, Ben. Grassroots members of Italy's populist five-star movement have voted to support the formation of a new government with the country's centre-left Democratic Party. The vote means that Italy will avoid fresh elections and that Giuseppe Conte will stay on as Prime Minister. Iran has said it will give the EU another two months to save the nuclear deal made between the nation and other world powers, which aims to prevent Iran proliferating dangerous nuclear materials. The offer comes as Iran also said it will free seven crew members from a British-flagged oil tanker that was seized in the Strait of Hormuz and held since July. And as you've just been hearing, Boris Johnson's opponents are attempting to bring a bill before the UK's parliament today in a bid to delay Brexit. Johnson lost his first vote as prime minister on the issue last night, and he's expected to call for a general election if his government is forced to request an extension to next month's Brexit deadline. Back to you, Ben. Thanks, Jolene. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Ben Rylan here with Terry Stiathny and Amy Pope. We'll move on to Ireland now, where US Vice President Mike Pence has recently undertaken a visit. Pence's choice of accommodation has come under scrutiny, however, after he opted to stay in a Trump resort situated in Doonbeg on the west coast of Ireland. Now, Doonbeg is some 150 miles from the Irish capital, Dublin. Pence was recently questioned about that decision. If you have a chance to get to Doonbeg, you'll find it's a fairly small place. Uh, and uh, the opportunity to stay at Trump National in Doonbeg to accommodate the unique footprint uh, that comes with our security detail and other personnel uh, made it logical. We checked it with the State Department. Uh, they approved us staying there. And, and I was... Uh, I was pleased to have the opportunity. Amy Pence has explained this as a logistical decision and also alluded to his relatives having descended from Doonbeg. Does that strike you as a bit odd? It's more than a bit odd. I mean, there there are a couple of issues here. Um, in the first instance, logistically, there's nothing logical about this. This They're not sort of major highways running back and forth. It's not that you can sort of you know, get into the helicopter and zip across the country and end up, right, this this added a tremendous amount of time and resources, including Secret Service resources, to the trip, all of which is paid for by the taxpayers. And then the second piece, which is really unusual, is the fact that it is, in fact, a Trump property. And um, once again, we see a member of the Republican Party effectively doing a little advertising for another Trump property and and creating real issues about appearance of conflict of interest. Mm, I mean, uh, the cynical among us might say that it's a very wise branding choice for for Trump to have become president and uh, for all of this to be taking place. Let's say, just purely for the sake of argument, Amy, that this was uh, connected to Trump's need for loyalty. Uh, Pence must have anticipated a bit of public outcry Presumably, he gets to stay in Trump's good books, however. Was the public outcry and all the blowback that's going to come from this, was it all worth it? 
I think if he wants to keep his job, right, Trump has made really clear that if there is a suggestion that you are not loyal to him, regardless of what constitutional norms may be violated, regardless of whether there are other laws that might be at issue, his number one concern is loyalty. And I think that this vice president has his eye on 2020, wants to make sure he's part of the ticket, knows that that's his way in. And this is another way to demonstrate that he'll take it on the chin for the president. Uh, He's... It is interesting. It did strike me as well that this must have something to do with his presidential aspirations, because if you look at the way Pence has operated over the years in in which he's been vice president, he does carry an unusual ability to remain visible at Trump's side and yet somewhat uncontroversial, When certainly when compared to the rest of the people who come in and out of Trump's orbit. Pence is a fairly sleepy presence. I mean, that's... How how long has he had his eye on this 2024 goal? I think it's a tactical decision on his end. No good comes of creating a big Twitter storm or news story around what you're doing with this president. And if he can demonstrate that he's sort of the sensible choice, that is, uh, will create confidence within the members of the House and Senate, who are often concerned about the president's uh, various tactics. But it also, it, it avoids putting the spotlight in, on him so he can sort of get the good um, blowback from what Trump is doing, but escape the negative scrutiny. Mm. Uh, Terry, this doesn't look good, obviously, but does anyone actually care? Of course, some people do care. I know that. I don't want to say that everyone's turned cynical and desensitized. But, I mean, what I'm getting at is, is if everything is controversial, does everything stop mattering? Uh, I don't know. I I don't know how much of an impact it will actually be. Interesting to see uh, the reaction that this gets within Ireland, because I think maybe people have stopped. I mean, as Amy says, people have started to sort of factor this in. You've started to expect that when, if not President Trump himself, then members of his administration come to visit in other places in Europe, you know, they will stay at the Trump resorts. I mean, Trump even himself suggested that the next G7 summit could be held at one of his own resorts in Florida. I mean, you know, yes, probably they've got big lawns and places to land your helicopter, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily make them the best place, as it certainly seems to be. Uh, this case. I mean, yes, some people regularly, you know, go and protest near the golf courses and things like that. But I think, yes, many people have almost started to write that off. Uh, and maybe the more important thing is the question of of the meetings that are actually had, you know, the meetings that were, Pence will have had on his trip to Poland in, in the president's stead and, you know, and other discussions. I think part of the risk is that it does then the sort of fury about who stays where then overshadows the actual substance of the discussions and the actual substance of what what these meetings then involve and it's quite easy to get caught up in that and you know and to ignore what's actually you know the substance of what's going on beneath Mm. Uh, Let's move along now to Hong Kong, where the chief executive Carrie Lam has announced today the withdrawal of proposed legislation that would allow enhanced extradition powers between Hong Kong and China. Now, that was the bill that sparked protests that have carried on and wreaked havoc in Hong Kong for the last three months. Uh, Now, look, this is uh, ostensibly, I suppose, a victory for the protesters in Hong Kong. Are they going to be viewing it that way, Amy? I can't imagine. I mean, if she had done this two months ago, back in June when this was their primary request, then yes. But at this point, so much has happened. There's been so much footage of the abuse of protesters. There has been a building of anger and, and frustration. And at this point, their demands have only increased. So yes, this is is um, one success, but it's a little bit too, too little too late.
Mm. Uh, Terry, a range of new measures were also announced, including two new members of a police watchdog agency. Uh, Nothing necessarily about uh, the proper investigation into some of the behaviour that was taking place and has been taking place by the police. That also is likely to only anger protesters even more. Yes, exactly. I mean, there there are now so many more demands that the protesters have have had a, a, above and beyond withdrawing this extradition bill, which was, a, you know, as you say, at the root of the original protests. Uh, and it's just interesting seeing how China today is still. Um, kind of piling on the pressure, if you like, on Hong Kong. They are still talking about, you know, the protesters being rioters. They're still talking about people being political terrorists who are bent on seizing power. And I think that kind of reaction from China is is not going to make people happy because they're going to say that, you know, look, one of our demands is having direct elections for our own chief executive. And once, you know, it's very hard to give up on that. And, you know, the China, uh, Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, is now stuck between, you know, completely between a rock and a hard place. She's reported to have said that she wants to leave, but she can't. Uh, and so, you know, the Hong Kong executive itself is now in a, in a very weak position. And I think that um, people who've been out protesting for the last three months are going to sense that. Mm. Um, and just finally on this, uh, Amy, uh, as Terry was saying, that, that recording of Carrie Lam that was published by Reuters uh, recently, uh, she was speaking to a group of business executives. Uh, She said that she would like to step down if she could. Uh, We know what the suggestion was, but one suspects now that given how far these protests have gone, that this action and really no realistic action from the government in Hong Kong, given the control that Beijing has, is going to do anything to to quell the anger of the protesters. Are we looking at at a situation where Hong Kong in the foreseeable future is going to be in the grip of these sorts of protests every weekend? I'm not sure if it lasts every weekend, but what I do think is the very instructive lesson from watching these protests take place is the influence that China has tried to exert over multinational businesses. And I think that's the issue that we really need to be paying attention to. When you have the Chinese government saying, we want you to turn over these people or terminate these people, or, you know, that that is at the heart of the issue with a company like Huawei. How much influence can the government exert over a multinational business? And what does that mean for stakeholders around the world? Amy Pub and Terry Stiasny, thank you. In a moment, why a Dutch design museum has courted controversy in dealing with the country's experience during the Second World War. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. For a global perspective and some fresh ideas direct to your door on business, culture and design, not to mention fashion, travel and much more, subscribe today and join the world of Monocle. As a valued subscriber, you'll get a 10% discount in all Monocle shops and our online store. You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. In addition, all one-year subscriptions come with a free limited edition Monocle tote bag. With four bespoke subscription packages to choose from, you decide what suits you and your lifestyle best. What are you waiting for? Visit monocle.com and subscribe today. This is Monocle's House View with me, Ben Rylan. Finally today, Monocle's Melkon Chachoklian looks at the difficult subject of how effective design was used by the Nazi regime in Germany for evil intent. Here's Melkon with more. This Sunday, the Design Museum Den Bosch in the Dutch city of Sertogenbosch 
will open a retrospective of Nazi design to mark the 75th anniversary of the city's liberation. It will come as no surprise that the museum is facing calls for the exhibition to be cancelled. The charge, reverence for a subject that should be buried. We should always sympathize with such grievances, but the museum's critics are leaping to a conclusion. Does watching Schindler's List mean that you revere the Third Reich? On the contrary, it's a question of education and remembrance. In that vein, Den Boss aims to demonstrate the dangerously powerful tool the design became under the Nazi regime, not to promote the subject matter. It'll do this by showing everything from the likes of conscription posters and architectural sketches to furniture from the Reich Chancellery and even the original Volkswagen Beetle. Willful ignorance comes at our peril, whether today or 80 years ago. Design, like politics, continues to be deployed to dupe the public. Just think of the arrow-shaped Brexit ballot logo subconsciously inviting the voters' tick. It's imperative that we learn from the past to discern the same trickery in the present. And that simply cannot happen if we shut down every sensitive discussion. That was Melkon Chachoglian there. That's all for today's program. It was produced by Tom Hall, and our studio managers were Bill Lutie, May Lee Evans, and Steph Chungu. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. I'm Ben Ryland. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.